Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Have you ever heard the illustration of the four blind guys who are standing around the elephant? Uh, And you've got the the one who's got the elephant by the trunk. uh, And as he's trying to tell what the elephant is like, uh, he thinks it's like a snake. Uh, And you've got the other one who's got the elephant by the leg and he feels it. And he thinks the elephant is like a very big tree. Uh, And you've got the one who's by the side of the elephant and he thinks the elephant's like a wall. Uh, One's got him by the ear, and he thinks he's a flying carpet. Um, In many ways, when we get to the subject of what is the role of a husband and wife in marriage, I think there is a lot of parallels between that classic illustration and the way that this subject is frequently addressed. Uh, That uh, a given speaker may have an affinity or an experience with one aspect of marriage that is most natural to them, and because that's what they hold on to, uh, then that's what they make these roles sound like. And it may just be that you know it's the personality of the given speaker or the given listener that just helps them know what makes it work for them. Um, but I think we would step back and say, you know, the the Bible is not that anecdotal. It's not, it doesn't make it just based on one particular personality and there's one kind of husband and one kind of woman that can be a good husband or a good wife. Or maybe you hear somebody speak or talk about this and it's the examples that they've had of bad marriages, people that they've worked with, a marriage that they've been in. And so they, they define what would make for a good husband or a good wife role based upon what they don't want to see happen. But then again, we would step back and, you know, the the Bible is not that reactionary. Uh, When the Bible puts forth something like this, it doesn't do so in a way that would say it's trying to respond against something. Or maybe it's just the cultural context of a given speaker or a listener. I mean, there was a certain kind of motif to marriage in the 50s, and then, you know, the 60s and 70s were their own thing, and then, you know, the 80s, and... But again, we would say, what the Bible has to say about marriage and family, it just, it isn't that culturally or time-bound. Or maybe it's just the stereotype that a given speaker fits in. Uh, And there's just, you know, certain stereotypes that really fit them well, uh, and they speak out of that as if that's what uh, biblical manhood or womanhood is supposed to be. Uh, But again, we would say, Scripture just doesn't speak in that one-size-fits-all way. Now, in terms of orienting you to where we want to go, uh, some of you, uh, you may have read several books on this kind of thing, and you've got some big word categories floating around in your head, and you go, which one of those boxes is he going to begin to speak from? Um, If that's you, I would say this presentation uh, is going to be of the complementarian variety. Uh, If that doesn't mean anything to you, just let that go. Uh, But if you're going, okay, I do know those words, and I want to know where you're at, I would tell you this is going to be a complementarian presentation. Uh, But at the same time, I hope one of the things that you find is that this is not rooted exclusively in a sense of hierarchy or authority. 
Because I think one of the things, going back to our example of the elephant, uh, is that sometimes we, we talk as if marriage is just one thing. Uh, and within a marriage, you have two people who are individuals that are making decisions and filling their roles just as, as individuals who have common values and dreams and priorities. But there's, there's two individuals making decisions and living within that. Uh, within a marriage, you have two people who make a group that they are friends and they interact as friends. And there's certain things that they just do by consensus and one anothering and being on the same page. And then there's also a sense in which uh, a marriage manages a whole lot of life and a whole lot of money and there's a certain structure that comes on and there's a little bit of a corporate feel to how we need to understand what's going on there. And so within marriage, if we are going to do a good job of talking about husband roles and wife roles, we're going to have to know how we can function as individuals, uh, as a group, and as this corporate status that exists between us within a marriage. And it's going to be all three. And I hope what we do tonight is that we lay the framework for that in such a way that when we get to the seminar, Gospel-Centered Marriage Decision-Making, and we address those three areas and how that impacts decision-making, that when we get there, that makes a lot more sense because of the foundations uh, that we laid here. Now, uh, Tim Keller gets us started. Uh, he says, There is a conservative approach to marriage that puts a great deal of stress on traditional gender roles. There's a lot of emphasis on the differences between men and women. The problem is that this overemphasis could encourage selfishness, especially on the part of the husband. He says, It is my experience that it is nearly impossible to come up with a single detailed and very specific set of manly or womanly characteristics that fits nearly every temperament and culture. Um, and so initially here, I would say there are certain things that we're just going to have to unthink before we figure out what to think. Um, you know, there are certain things about me that would traditionally be thought of as manly. My favorite vegetables are deep fried and slathered in gravy. One of the most glorious things that, God, that, in my opinion, God created was the pig. I mean, think about it. This is an animal whose sole existence is to consume massive quantities of vegetables and convert them into bacon. What a glorious animal. I think, you know, when you get to the end part there and God said it was very good, I'm not completely convinced he was talking about the man and woman I think he was still hung up on the pig it you know me I I love to take my boys on adventures where we go get an a hot dog the size of their arms slathered in chili to go out camping and do things like that um, I find the sight of my wife ravishing and I'll get downright silly just out of how much I enjoy her but I will tell you, none of that makes me a man. That doesn't make me more manly. I enjoy cooking. To relax, I'll watch a cooking show. I like to go for walks on the beach. And when we plan a vacation, if there's an opportunity to do that, that is one of my preferred things to do, is just to have a quiet setting like that where I can walk with my wife. My profession is to sit around and listen to people's problems all day long. 
And I choose that. And I enjoy that. And I feel fulfilled and called to that. And I don't think any of that makes me less of a man. And when we start talking about all of these things that these male and female stereotypes that we're very naturally given to, I think for a minute we just have to stop and, and unthink those things. Because here's an assumption that I have going into this presentation. Every man can be a godly husband as God defined. And every woman can be a godly wife as God defined. Regardless of her personality, regardless of his strengths, that every person can fulfill what God has called them to do. Um, that, again, like we said last time, every combination of male personalities and aptitudes and abilities and female aptitudes and personalities, they have come together and they've made beautiful marriages and every combination has come together and made very broken marriages. And the question is not, do I have the personality or ability to fulfill the role that God has called me to? Because God will empower me to do what He has called me to do as a man or woman because of His faithfulness. And the job description He gives us is not bound to particular types of people. So I hope what that does is here in the beginning. It gives you the ability to take a deep breath and relax. And you don't have to filter this talk through the fear, what if that's not me? Um, now, to take us a step further, Winston Smith, he says, your identity as someone's spouse is secondary to your identity as a servant of God. Again, another way that I would say that is one way to understand your mission statement as a husband or wife is to make it as easy as possible for your spouse to look like, live for, and show others Jesus. And everything else we're going to talk about is just the details of that. Uh, because that is the primacy of my identity. I am first and foremost a child of God who is called to be an ambassador of God, who comes alongside of my wife, I, having chosen to do that with her uh, as her life partner. And so if you look at that job description that's in your notebook, uh, up at the top, it says, who does, they, who does this job description report to? It reports to God through your local church as held accountable by your small group. I will say this as many times as people will give me a microphone and let me say it. A gospel-centered marriage protects itself by being meaningfully involved in community. I have I've recently counted up over 12,000 hours of face-to-face -face counseling experience with folks. And in all of that time, I have never had someone come to me and say, Brad, our marriage is in shambles. And you know what? We have been meaningfully involved in Christian community the entire time, both of us being open and honest and transparent with Christian friends that we trust. I've never had that said to me. I've had plenty of other things where people thought that they were doing what God would call them to do, and they say, we thought this was going to work. We read this book. We were doing this technique. We went on a date. We went to this seminar. We... But I've never had anybody say we were meaningfully involved in Christian community, mutually being transparent about our strengths and weaknesses with trusted Christian friends that we trusted. And our marriage just fell apart. Because a gospel-centered marriage will live in a gospel community. 
You know, all comedians have their punchline. Uh, Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield or whoever that was, I can't get any respect. You know what I think the punchline of hell is? The line that keeps them rolling and laughing for eternity on end. That's none of their business. I think hell lasts. I think they just get red in the face, hurt in their side, stitches, pain. You believe they really believe that? He said it with a cuss word. Isn't that funny? You know, that's just, that's just none of their business. I'm not letting anybody get in my business. I'd rather end my marriage end in divorce than really tell people what's going on in my life because then everybody's going to know what's going on. No. Let us. Let us die to ourselves and immerse ourselves in a community where we can say, you know what, these are the strengths and weaknesses that we have. This is what's going on with us. Let us quit with the punchline of hell making it sound like it's the common sense wisdom of our day. Um, and so, again, that is where it reports to. Now, uh, Brian Chapel, uh, in getting us into the job description here, he says, the example the husband sets has eternal consequences. This means that headship is more about controlling one's character than controlling one's wife. The man who is more concerned with how his wife should obey him than with how he should obey God fails the kindergarten of biblical headship. Um, and here I would say when we ask second questions first, even if we get the right answers on the second questions, they become horribly distorted. And so when you look at area one of the job description, and areas one, two, and three that we're going to look at, those are shared and mutual areas. These are things where I would say the job description for a husband and wife are the same. When we get to area four, that's where I'm going to say we have unique aspects for both husband and wife. But area one is to actively pursue the personal character necessary to sustain a healthy marriage. This is the moral obligation and sign of true conversion for every Christian. This is where there should be a growing evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in every person who calls themselves a husband and every person who calls themselves a wife. Your spouse should never have to demand these qualities of you. Your spouse is only the recipient of a blessing that flows from your imitation of God in these ways. Now, here is a point that, that again, I will probably come across slightly strong, but I think it needs to be heard. This, this first area is simply personal maturity. And one of the neglected implications of leaving and cleaving is that marriage is for adults. It's not for children. The implication, if I am going to leave my mother and father, is that I am an adult who is managing my own character well enough that I can sustain a marriage and a family. And so as we look at this, this is part of what it means to be a mature adult who is living in a way that can sustain a healthy relationship. Now, on your job description, uh, you're going to see that the fruit of the Spirit come down the middle 
on, on each side, there's a spot for the active and passive distortions. Now, this is a highly interactive job description that you have. This is a job description that you have to write on. Because I believe Scripture gives us a sufficient but broad brushstroke picture of what it is that we are called to do. And our given strengths and weaknesses, our given personality and temperaments, our given abilities and abilities that we don't have are things that we need to map on and to look at and to bring that together. Uh, and so I'll give us just a few examples here of what we would mean. You know, if we take the attribute of love, if I were to ask you what is the opposite of love, my guess is most of you would say hate, and you would be very confident that you had given the right answer. As if there were only one right answer to what is the opposite of hate. There are many, I'm sorry, many opposites of love. There are many aggressive opposites of love. You have hate, you have obsession, you have lust, you have this perpetual dissatisfaction. All of those are these aggressive, steroid-esque opposites, distortions of love. And on the other side, you have the passive opposites or the passive distortions of love. You have neglect and apathy and indifference. And I would say every one of us has a natural inclination in one of those directions. I'm a very passionate person. When I, when I see something that I want to pursue, I just, I am focused and I am there. And with that, that sense of obsessiveness or focusness, focusness, it begins to take me to that aggressive distortion of love. And unless I'm aware of that, it leaves many of the passive distortions of neglect and indifference in its wake. And as a husband, as a Christ follower, I am called to examine myself and to see where those strengths and weaknesses are and to know them and to frequently bring them to my wife so she is not in the position of having to always bring them to me. Um, peace. Again, we'll just take a few of these and give some examples. You know, we can, on that aggressive distortion of peace, we can be someone who's critical, who's argumentative, who must have the last word. Uh, or on the passive side, we can just live in denial, pretend like everything's okay when it's not, uh, be compromising on things that are really important, always try to be neutral so that nobody gets their uh, feathers ruffled. Okay, again, what I would encourage you to do is to ask yourself, which way do I tend to lean in that? And how strongly do I lean? Um, you know, with patience. Uh, some people aren't patient because they're overly opinionated, because they're condemning of the weaknesses of others, because they're very slow to listen, they're very quick to speak and just think they have the right idea and what needs to be heard, and, and they're just not good at being patient. Or maybe on the passive side, somebody just quits when things get hard. Uh, one of the older words for patience in this list was long-suffering, uh, the opposite of being a quitter. Or I'm short-sighted. Uh, I just All I see is right here, and patience has that sense of long vision that allows me to endure the hardship that I'm under. And so again, what I would encourage you to do as a husband and wife is to go through and to share with one another where your weaknesses are, where your strengths are, 
you know what? Your spouse is not going to be surprised. If you invite this conversation and you make it safe and you make it welcome, you have just done something extraordinary for your marriage. If the only time that you have these conversations is when your weakness has created some kind of problem for the marriage, these conversations are going to be very defensive and problematic. And so again, area one of my job description is to pursue a personal character necessary to sustain uh, a healthy marriage. It, uh, area two um, is to actively pursue the marks of Christian relationship in your marriage. Uh, Gary Thomas sets the stage for us here. He says, God is always worthy of being obeyed and served. So when I act out of obedience to Him, the person who receives my service doesn't have to be deserving. They're benefiting from what I owe God. Service includes allowing your spouse to give, if, of course, they are willing to give. In other words, service isn't just washing somebody else's feet. At time, it's letting your own feet be washed. And so, again, that second area is to actively pursue those marks of Christian relationships for your marriage. Here, what we're going to look at is the one another commands of the New Testament. That within the New Testament, there are between 20 and 35, depending on what translation you have, uh, of the way they use a different word or the same word, of these one another commands that are supposed to be the mark of Christian relationship. Uh, and marriage should be the example, not the exception. And when I do the things that we lay out here, I'm not going the extra mile for my spouse. I am simply doing what God would call me to do in all of my Christian relationships. And I am making sure that first and foremost, I do this for my wife or for my husband. Because too often, we, we think we can make it up to our spouse when we would make it a priority for our friends. And if anything, that should be reversed. Now, on your job description, you're going to see that there's columns here uh, where it says, my strength, my weakness, my spouse's desire. Uh, and for each one of these, again, this is going to be a highly interactive document where you go through and say, in each of these one another commands of the New Testament, where am I strong? What do I naturally do? What do I not naturally do? And in this area, what would be most meaningful to my wife or to my husband? Uh, because again, you want to write that out. You want to see that. These are conversations that if we wait until we haven't been doing it to have the conversation, how do you think that's going to go? If we take an opportunity like this to initiate that conversation, uh, it becomes a wonderful blessing to our marriage. Now, I selected ten of the one another commands of the New Testament. Um, I think these are representative. Uh, I put them in alphabetical order. Um, but I hope what you gain from this is that whenever you're reading through the New Testament and you find a one another command, even if it's not one that we've selected here, that it becomes a beacon in your mind. This is talking about my marriage too. Um, and so, uh, in Romans, it says we are to accept one another. Uh, and here, one of the things that I would simply say is that 
If I am fulfilling the command to be accepting of my wife, she should never be concerned, am I blank enough for my husband? Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I uh, interesting enough? Am I blank enough? Because in marriage, just like in my relationship with Christ, my acceptance is based upon relationship, not based upon performance. And it's only when we get this one another command right that we can allow marriage enrichment to be motivated by love instead of by fear. Because if my marriage enrichment is motivated by this sense of, am I really blank enough for my spouse? Then if I picked up a book and the subtitle was How to Affair-Proof My Marriage, it's going to appeal to that, but that is so rooted in fear that I've got to be blank enough. I've got to meet these uh, expectations in just such a way or this leads to a fear. And when we say no, that is not what Scripture teaches about a relationship like a marriage or Christian relationship in general, that there is this foundation of acceptance based upon covenant. Uh, again, we go admonish uh, and then... We're to bear one another's burdens, as it says in Galatians 6. You know, one of the things I hear frequently in marriage, when a marriage begin to deteriorate and drift apart from one another, is that they'll say, I don't want to be a burden to my spouse. And what happens then is we begin to neglect that sense of marital friendship. One of the vital skills in marriage is to be able to hear what is burdening one another um, without that sense that I have to fix it. What we want to generate is that freedom to speak about our burdens and to have a sense of certainty that I'm not going to be alone in the midst of this, but you're here with me. Again, just as a, a quick little application point here, when your spouse is sharing a burden with you, my, my advice to you is this. Listen to that like you would take a prayer request. When, when after service, the, the pastors and elders are, are at the front of a, a service to receive people who come forward and they have a particular burden, our goal in listening at that moment is to hear what is going on in their world well enough that we can understand what the key pieces of the struggle is so that we can take that burden to the, to the Lord on their behalf in words where they would go, yes, that is what I would say to God if I thought He would hear me, if I thought He would listen. Yes, that is, that is what is going on in my world. When it speaks of bearing one another's burdens, it may become more practical than that in terms of what we do and us being involved and helping one another. But if it tries to become more practical than that, before it is that sense that I can speak this to God on your behalf in a way that it relieves you, that you are not alone in this because somebody understands you, if I try to get practical before I can do that, I've cut my feet out from under myself in terms of bearing a burden. Um, we're to build one another up. We're to confess our sins to one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to be honest with one another. Uh, the next one we'll look at here is we're to honor one another. 
uh, one of the, the baseline pieces that I try to put before married couples is simply this principle of honor before pleasure. That you can trust that if I am forced to choose between my personal preference and honoring our marriage in this relationship and treating you with dignity and respect, I will put honor before pleasure. You know, if there's a funny joke that I could make at your expense that would make you look bad and everybody else in the room would get a kick out of it and think I was really funny, I will choose honor before pleasure. When there's a purchase that I really want to make but it's not in the budget that we've agreed to, but I would really enjoy it, and I have to choose, am I going to put pleasure before honor or honor before pleasure? I will put honor before pleasure, and I will forego what that expense would benefit me and the pleasure it would bring in order to honor the commitment that we've made. When there's just all of these little minor disagreements that I would love to just blow up to make things and force them to go my way because I think life would be better if it just went this, whatever my pet peeve is. I am called to put honor before pleasure. When it comes to a conversation that's important to you, but I just don't happen to find that interesting, and I would rather focus my mental attention on something that I find more enjoyable, will I put pleasure before honor, or will I put honor before pleasure? Again, this isn't me going the extra mile. This is me doing what God calls on each one of us to do in our one another relationships, of which marriage should be the example. We're to serve one another. Uh, we're to spur one another on. Now here, let me ask you the question. Do you ever daydream about how your spouse was designed by God to change the world and how you can fuel the work that God is doing in and through your spouse? You should. Daydream, what God, how have you created my spouse to be a part of advancing your kingdom to the ends of the world? And how can I be a part of that? In my opinion, that's the difference between date dreaming and marriage dreaming. In date dreaming, I dream about how you fit in my world and my dreams and my plans and how you can do everything that I ever wanted to do in this aspect of my life and you're going to fit right into the dreams that I've always had. In marriage dreaming, I am choosing to join you in covenant to be a part of what God is doing in your life and I find that lifetime satisfying. And that's what it means within a small group to spur one another on, as it says in Hebrews, to love and good works. It is especially what it means within a marriage uh, that we would interact that way. Now, uh, John Piper, um, he's moving us closer as we get into the specific aspects of husband and wife roles. Uh, he says, after declaring that there is mutual submission in verse 21. Uh, he's talking about Ephesians 5. Paul devotes 12 verses to unfolding the difference in the way a husband and wife should serve each other. You don't need to deny mutual submission in order to affirm the importance of the unique role of husband as head and the unique calling of the wife to submit to that headship. Now, um, the area 3 of the job description that you have in front of you 
is to fulfill the shared responsibilities of marriage not pertaining to gender roles. So again, we started and we said the first aspect for both husband and wife is to have a personal maturity that can sustain a healthy marriage and relationship. Part two is to enact the one another commands of the New Testament that are the marks of Christian friendship of which marriage should be the example, not the exception. We're getting closer and now we say, okay, there's certain aspects of marriage that we do together. That this is part of us living as a functional unit. They don't necessarily play into the man has to do this and the woman needs to do that. They're not gender specific, but they are more marriage specific than the fruit of the Spirit or the one another commands that I fulfill with everybody else. Uh, and I've tried to outline those with uh, Ephesians 5, uh, 15 to 21. Because one of the things that I think we often miss when we look at the Ephesians 5 passage on marriage is how Paul introduced it. He introduced it by having every believer examine their life systems. And so the things that we're going to talk about here, I would say it is the role of male headship to make sure these important conversations have been initiated, that these topics have been discussed within the marriage, but either husband and wife could do them and do them in a way that's faithful to Scripture. And so we start with verse, 10, verse 15 of Ephesians 5, where Paul says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so the first place that I would encourage you to look at there is your finances. Do you have a monthly family budget that keeps up with all income and all expenses? Does your planned monthly income exceed your planned monthly spending? Are you underwater before the month begins? Do you have a system of saving for significant future expenses? Again, we will cover this when we get to the Gospel-Centered Marriage Seminar on Finances. But here I would simply put forward, do not say to me that you have prayed over a significant financial decision and that you do not have a budget. It is... It is a contradiction of statement. If I have not sat back and said, Lord, how do you want me to manage this money that you have blessed me with? And then I get to a significant decision like a house or a car or whether we homeschool, private school or public school our children. And there's a significant financial decision that I've made. And I've not said, Lord, this basic resource that you have given me to mediate life, I've not prayed over that. It, there is no way that we can say that in husbands, that we can say we are leading our family in this kind of decision making if we don't have it. In uh, looking at our life, how we live is not as unwise, but as wise. Household task. Some questions for you to think through there. Uh, verse 16, Paul says, Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. My question is, when you look at all that you expect to do, does it fit within a 168-hour week? I know a lot of marriages that crash because they're trying to cram 200 to 250 hours worth of good stuff in a 168-hour week. And again, it's in our job description. We are not living responsibly in the areas that, that don't have anything to do with headship or submission if we are trying to do more than fits in a given week. Uh, 17 and 18. Uh, Paul says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
do you have a discussed way of making decisions that recognizes that we're individuals and that we're grouped within a friendship and that there's times there's this corporate where there's headship and submission involved? Do you have a way of making decisions that take those things into account? Because again, that begins to move us towards headship and submission. But a lot of that, just kind of the day-to-day decision-making, we just need to be responsible and mature, and that is part of being a good husband and wife. And then finally, verse 21, as Paul gets ready to step into headship and submission. Uh, He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so my question there is, do we tend to blame or resent our spouse for having to meet the requirements of areas 1, 2, and 3? Does it upset me that my wife is the one who sees my character weaknesses more than anybody else does, and somehow I blame her because she lives more closely to me than anybody else does? Do I get upset because of the one another expectations that are put upon me within marriage and somehow build a sense of resentment because of that? Uh, this aspect of just living responsibly in the area of finances and time and household tasks, do I begin to resent that? Because if I am, I am not submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ because those are the things that Christ asked me to do as a mature and responsible adult that only have increasingly relevant application because I am sharing life with someone closer than anybody else. And here, in kind of closing this section, I would simply say how we respond to that is one of the clearest pictures of whether or not we have a gospel-centered marriage. Because if I want to bring my marriage to be gospel-centered, how I respond to the changes that I need to make sets the tone for my family. When I, instead of being loving, I begin to get that kind of obsessive. I'm passionate about what I do. I love my job. And I begin to put neglect in its wake. Am I looking for that? And when that comes, do I respond in humility and repentance? Or do I force my wife to try to find other things outside of the gospel to manipulate and coerce me in order to get me to do the things that God has called me to do many other ways? Or that God has called me to do through the gospel, but because I am not responding to that, I force her to pursue those other things. I think this is why so many of the materials on marriages that are out there, even within Christian circles, talk about everything but the gospel. Because we have quit responding to the basic conviction that we have through humility, through repentance, through forgiveness, and we're beginning to have all these fads and techniques and tactics to try to get our spouse to do what they ought to do in response to the gospel. And I would say this to us as men, particularly as men, one of the most important things that I can do as shepherd and as leader and protector of my family is to respond to the gospel in areas 1, 2, and 3 of this job description. So I am not forcing my wife to look outside of the gospel in order to that needed change within me and in effect in her and in our children.